0: Open your Bibles to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And last week we started this, this new chapter and said that the theme of the first three scenes is actually spiritual denseness or dullness. And, and I can remember being given a paraphrase Bible one time, not a translation, but a par- paraphrase. And it was supposedly written for the, for the man on the street, the, the, the individual on the street that didn't know Bible language and Bible words, which, as you know, is written in, in English that, that even children can understand. But, but they had uh, attempted to do something good and, and presented it in a way that the common man was supposed to be able to understand. And, and, and in a passage about uh, where Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, it was translated, he called them blockheads. The, the Pharisees were blockheads. And, and I can it's probably not a bad title for for these next two scenes. It's the, the blockheads of the Pharisees and the blockheaded disciples, as as we're going to see. The denseness of of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that, that Matthew tells us is, is is with the is with the group, they demand a sign from Jesus after he's already provided many. And then there's the denseness of the disciples that 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 was read to us this morning about how they get in the boat and Jesus says beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of and of Herod and and they say did we did we forget bread what does he what does he know and uh, when you put those two scenes together they they're all about spiritual blindness Jesus is talking about the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees that are fixed in their condition. They're fixed in their unbelief. And then he's also talking about the spiritual dullness of the disciples, and that's Mark intentionally puts them together in the last scene that we see before Jesus leaves Galilee, puts them intentionally back to back, the Pharisees and the disciples in their dullness, in their blindness, and then it's no mistake that the very next healing is Jesus progressively opening the eyes of a blind man. All of that's put together so we can see this this theme. He is the cure for spiritual dullness, for spiritual blindness, for doubt, whatever it is. And and yet there is a profound difference between the two. Even though it's a similar theme, there's a profound difference that the Bible makes between the Pharisees and how Jesus deals with them and what he says about them and then the disciples in the in the next passage. One is blind and the other one is is dim. Spiritual blindness is a disease of the human heart. And no amount of religious activity or supernatural events or signs in heaven or dreams or premonitions or prompts or whatever will cure spiritual blindness. He's going to show us that with the Pharisees. And spiritual dimness is is a problem of the heart. Blindness is a disease, but dimness is a problem. And we're going to see how Jesus deals with that with the disciples. And when you put the two scenes together, it's a picture of blindness before salvation and how spiritual eyes form in salvation. One is enduring. These Pharisees have a condemnation spoken to them today and they're fixed in their condition. And yet the disciples, the other is curable. One is hostile toward the truth and the other is bewildered. One is fixed in unbelief and they're left in the dark. And the other is correctable doubt and they're led to the, to the light. And I actually think that there are a few passages in the Bible that probably rank in the top five of, of the saddest because of what's at stake. And I think this is one of them. This story ends, even though it's three, three, only three verses, verse 11, 12, and 13 of Mark 8. It, it ends with one of the saddest in all the Bible. It's, it's a defining moment. Because in verse 13, it says, leaving them, he again embarked and went his way to the other side. It's the disciples and Jesus go away from Galilee, from this verse. He's been presenting himself to, as the Messiah there. He's preached the gospel of the kingdom to him. He's done all of the works that the Messiah is supposed to do. He's sent out the disciples to multiply his message. They've come back. The religious leaders have rejected him. They've sent up the, the, the troops from Jerusalem, the, the heavy hitters who declared what Jesus was doing was of was Beelzebub. He's rejected in Nazareth. His ministry is almost over in, in Galilee. And then he takes the disciples into this foray and this trip into the Gentile region to show them that the Gentiles are included in the kingdom. And now we come back here to the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee for one final condemnation, one final confrontation that ends with a final condemnation. And from this point forward, when you watch as you walk through Mark, this is a decisive turn. The Pharisees and their followers are entrenched in hardness. The disciples will will also end up seeing at the end of Mark chapter 8, you have Caesarea Philippi, where they finally see and they declare, you are the Christ. And then Jesus will march toward the cross. And these two scenes are placed together for us, right before Jesus turns from Galilee toward Jerusalem, for us to consider how we're responding to the message of of Christ. Both Jesus' enemies and his followers up to this point have been able to grasp very little. Would you say amen to that? Even the disciples have been able to grasp very, very little. And obviously the Pharisees have been able to grasp very little. They, they both have a lot to learn. But one group is fixed in darkness and the other is growing in understanding. I wonder... Which category you would fit in this morning? Are you fixed in your darkness? Or are you growing in your understanding? Mark here starts with these three verses of the ones who are suppressing the truth. And then they're abandoned to their own desires. Verse 11 through 13. You can see the title there. When you're too blind to see. And here is a very simple outline, but but profound. When you're too blind to see, whenever you're in the category of of uh, of being fixed in darkness, you resist more illumination. You require or demand more revelation, and in the end, you receive neither. You receive more condemnation, and that's what Jesus unfolds in this passage let's look at the first one you resist more illumination look if you would at verse 11 you back up to verse 10 and i'll show you how these two fit together because my bible has a has a has a little heading there and you understand in the original text that wouldn't have been there after the feeding of the four thousand in verse 10 it says and immediately that's jesus he entered the boat with the disciples and he came to the district of dalmanutha the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to to test him. Mark introduces this new section with immediately after the feeding of the 4000 Jesus gets in this boat and he goes to a district that's that's unknown it's we we don't know where Dalmanutha is 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 today and that's not surprising because the the water in the Sea of Galilee uh uh, recedes and and uh, and it gets bigger. There's earthquakes that have taken place in the area, so they just haven't discovered it yet. But Matthew also tells us the same, gives us another marker. It says it's in the in the region of Magadan. It's the close to Capernaum, and the point is that it's it's Jewish territory. And you remember this area is near. Capernaum, where Jesus' headquarters was at. And it's also the center of the, of the conflict that he's been having with the, with the leaders. And Mark says that as Jesus returns to this Jewish area, the Pharisees come out to oppose him. That's the way he writes it. That's what he wants us to notice. As soon as Jesus comes to the district of Dalmanutha, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him. That's, that's the emphasis. He comes to the other district... And they came out. He came too, and they came out. And they begin to argue. What Mark wants us to see is just no random meeting. They don't just like bump into each other. Jesus is not there, and he's doing some works or miracles, and the Pharisees say, oh, there's Jesus. Let's have a conversation. He just arrived. He just gets out of the boat. And they're opposing him. And Matthew tells us that the Sadducees were with him. Now we've already mentioned that when you see Pharisees and Sadducees, that those go together in our mind, but but they they don't in 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 their minds. These two groups don't play well together. They're not friends. The Pharisees are the legalists. The Sadducees are the are the liberals. This is uh, this is worse than Republicans and Democrats coming together doing something. I mean, this is like really really uh, bitter enemies, but they have a common enemy, and that's the. That's the truth. MacArthur said that's the way darkness works. If you're in darkness, you're comfortable with other people in darkness. Evil company is better than righteous company, even if the evil company is your enemy. That's that's true. Jesus comes back to this Jewish area in order to preach and teach. And what he finds is a predisposed resistance. They're argumentative. They come out to begin to argue with him. And they're resisting more illumination before he ever gives it, before Jesus ever opens his mouth. They're not disputing something that he's teaching. They're not taking him back to the Old Testament, asking a question about that. They are predisposed in opposition to Christ. And the minute that he gets out of the boat, they're on him and they're arguing with him. They're resisting more illumination before he even gives it. They have a predisposed resistance. They have a predisposition. They're, they're recalcitrant or recalcitrant, however you say that word. They're, 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 they're just, they're resistant. Does that describe you this morning? The way you came to church? Did you come this morning with your heart already turned off? You came this morning. Good, Corky, I'm glad. You come every Sunday, one of, one, one of two ways. Either you come with a receptive heart or you come with a resistant heart. And for some of you, that's a predetermined setting. You're either receptive and you're, you're, you're normally receptive. I mean, so you may get down every now and then, and something may cause you to stumble, but for, for, the, most, for the most part, you, you are, you're receptive. You come... To the Bible, you come to church, you come to singing, you come to whatever it is, and you you come with a receptive heart. You you want to know God, you want to hear what God has to say, and and some of you come with a with a presetting of a resistant heart. You have a predetermined setting. If you have a resistant heart, if you have a receptive heart, you 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 hear from the Lord, and, and you're blessed. If you if you have a resistant heart. It's a predetermined setting, and then you get upset when, when God or the preacher doesn't give you something. You, do you come to church playing catcher, or do you come to church thinking it's like dodgeball? I mean, are you, are you, you, you sitting there? Now, now, I know the World Series is going on, and you watch the guy, you know, do the little signs while he's down on the ground. You don't get to call the ball. You don't get to tell God which pitch to pitch, God pitches whatever He wants to pitch and that's, that's from His Word. But, but are you there leaning in with a receptive heart ready to catch whatever it is? Whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, whether it, it steps on your toes or not, whether it encourages you, corrects you, rebukes you, are you sitting there and your, your job when you come is to catch the pitch or, or are you like dodgeball? You know? Are you truly listening to hear? Or are you ready to deflect whatever whatever God sends? There may be reasons why you're resistant. But the way you approach God will determine what you get from Him. And the Pharisees here are coming to argue. And people who argue with God don't get anything from God. Look at their motive. Because they'd only... They don't only argue, they're arrogant. Look at their motive in verse verse 11. They come out and begin to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, and here's their motive, to test him. That's their purpose. Not only do people who are too blind to see approach with an unteachable spirit, they're they're arrogant. I think those two things go together. An unteachable spirit and arrogance goes together. You've met the person who knows everything, right? They're not a humble person. And the idea here is they're testing to challenge Jesus. It's what Israel did to God in the wilderness. They tempted the Lord. And the Lord tests us many times. He's able to do that. He doesn't tempt us with evil. He tests us so we'll know what's in our own hearts. God already knows what's in our hearts. But we don't test God. And we surely don't tempt God. And their idea here in asking Jesus for a sign is, is if you're from God, then prove it. And and I really don't think you are. That's basically what they're saying. Prove it it's It's like the person who likes to argue over every little doctrinal point that that there is, and sometimes i get I even get lost trying to find what what they're saying now genesis thirty six says this and proverbs two three says this, and James says that, therefore and i'm like i I got lost in Genesis, and everything in christianity is is about some little doctrinal nuance rather than knowing christ and what is clearly revealed in the Word. Listen, whatever God majors on, you major on it. And if God doesn't major on it, then you don't major on it. And if God says it, you believe it. Pretty simple. This is the person who turns off when a passage says something that they don't already agree with and gives a hearty amen when one does. Listen, it's not bad to ask questions. God encourages you to do that. It's not bad to tell the Lord how you feel. It's not bad to say, wow, that's really hard. I don't, I, I, that, I, I don't like that. That's what David does in the Psalms all the time. But there's a way in which you do that. You don't do that with arrogance. You don't do that tempting the Lord, demanding from the Lord. The difference is the approach of the heart. And humble people aren't looking for a fight. And teachable people aren't arrogant enough to have one. You resist more illumination. That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees are doing here. You also require more, more uh, uh, revelation. You require more revelation. I want you to notice they demand of God and then they depreciate the Bible. That's not just talking about them. That's talking about anybody who's in this condition. Verse 11, I want you to notice what they ask. They they argue, and their their attitude or their motive is to test him. But look at what they ask. They ask seeking from him a sign from heaven. Arrogance and argument have demands, and they're demanding something. They come arguing, they come arrogantly, and they have a demand. And the demand is that Jesus would show them a sign from heaven. They've heard his teaching already. They're seeing people believing, coming to him, and they're coming to him also in authority, and they demand that he prove something. Now, you you remember that this is the same group back in Capernaum that has already made their declaration on the signs that Jesus has done? And they're saying that everything that Jesus has done is is of the devil. We can't deny what he's done. We saw what he did. He cast out a demon right in our presence. We we can't deny that that happened, but we're just going to say we're going to attribute that power to to the power of, of Satan. Now they're saying, Prove that that's not the case. When they draw the conclusion about his signs, they conclude that it's of the devil. And now what they're saying is, you prove that you're not of the devil. We say you're bad. You prove you're good. Show us a sign from heaven. Show us a sign, not from you, but from God, that God would speak from heaven and show very clearly that you're not of the devil. That's that's the idea. That's what they're saying. And they're thinking that he wouldn't be able to do that. And that he'd be proven a fraud. A fraud. They, that's what they want to do. They want to discredit him. If he says, I'm not going to do that, then the people are, are, are going to know he can't. And if he can't, then he's discredited. He's a fake. That's, that's, that's their goal here. And they're, they're demanding a sign based on Deuteronomy 18, 18 through, through 22. Deuteronomy 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them all that, that I command him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, that prophet shall die. That's, that's what they're saying. Show us a sign. The Bible says, the Old Testament says, when a prophet comes, that, that will you'll be able to prove that, that you're a prophet. If a prophet speaks truthfully, then it... It should be evident, but if he speaks something that's way out there in the future, then it it may be verified or accompanied by a sign to authenticate it. Now, has Jesus already done that? Yeah. Demons cast out in their presence, the deaf sealed. The dead was raised, even the synagogue leader's daughter from Capernaum. I mean, they knew the guy, they knew the little girl, it happened. Do they need more? No. Do they demand more? Yes. They demand more revelation. They demand more from God in their condition. They're demanding that Jesus authenticate His words and His ministry, demonstrate the legitimacy of your actions, prove to me that the Bible is true, prove to me that Jesus lived, prove to me that He died, prove to me that He rose from the dead. And when you do that, they'll demand more. But what about this? But what about the pygmies in Africa? But what about the people that have never heard about Christ? You've witnessed to those kind of people, right? But, 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 B.R. Lakin said the church is full of billy goats. They're budding, always budding all the time. And you need to understand that. People that are unsaved, that are in darkness, will always demand more. The Bible does not teach... That mankind is in some neutral state. You need to get that. The people that you're gonna come in contact with, even next week, are gonna look really nice, and their children are gonna be really cute and dressed up, and, and they're, you know, they're gonna be at all, from all walks of life, and they're gonna look really good on the outside, and they're gonna smile, but you need to understand that they're not in some neutral state, where they're just waiting for somebody to bring them the puzzle piece for, to fill in the God-shaped hole in their, in their heart. That's why most people come to Christ in crisis. Mankind is not for God. The Bible says we're at an enmity with God. We hate the truth. We hate the light. And you need to get that right or you're going to mess up witnessing. Now, I'm not telling you that you walk up to Him and you say, Oh, you look really cute, but I know your heart is very, very wicked. But you need to understand whenever you 're sharing the truth with them the condition of their heart're going they 're going to demand more they 're going to they 're going to resist the illumination that's that 's there or you 're going to think all you have to do is make Jesus look more attractive to them, or or show them how Jesus meets their deepest need. Jesus is not attractive to them. Jesus was not attractive to you before you came to Christ. You didn't know what your deepest need was, but God showed you how beautiful Christ was, even whenever He was hanging on a bloody cross, and He showed you what your need was. It wasn't money, or emotional health, or self-esteem, or whatever it is. It's Christ. And that's something that's spiritually discerned. That's something that the Spirit of God opens your eyes to. And He does that through means. He does that through you. But if you go to them and peddle something that's not even going to come close to hit the target, then they're never going to come. The only Jesus that would really be attractive to you or me before I came to Christ or anybody else is not the one of the Bible. Which is why those that Jesus is all over the health, wealth, gospel or Joel Osteen or whoever it is. And he's very that Jesus is very attractive because all that does is pump up self-righteousness in the flesh and feeds the needs that are there. That's why the first thing the truth does is it humbles you, right? The first thing that God has to do is put you flat on your back where you have no place to look but up. But praise God, He points you to look up. And when you look up, you see Jesus Christ on the cross. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. And a person doesn't realize their loss; so they don't look for a Savior. And as I said, I want you to notice that Jesus... They don't want a sign from Jesus. They want a sign from heaven. The Greek is specific. They want a sign from God. They want heaven to confirm, not Jesus. They've already seen Jesus confirm things. They want God to bring forth an act which would reveal his approval of Jesus in an irrefutable way. That's what they want. And by doing that, they they depreciate the words of God, or as I put it, they depreciate the Bible, because that's how God speaks to us today. They want a sign of astrological proportions. They They want, as one commentator said, a miracle in the sky. They want the sun to stop like Joshua did. They want... Be like Elijah, to bring fire down out of heaven. They want God to do some trick. And he points them to the words of his son, he points them to the Bible. Matthew chapter 16, verse 4. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. But this is a parallel passage. Matthew 16, verse 4. Jesus says, exact parallel passage. And Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given. But, but Matthew adds something, except the sign of Jonah. That's how Matthew adds to this narrative. And you put two of them together. That's the beauty of having four Gospels. Put it together and you can get the full picture. No sign will be given. No astrological sign in the heavens will be given from God. The only sign that will be given is, is the sign of Jonah. Jonah of the Bible. Jonah of the Old Testament that they should have known. And a lot of people want God to do a magic trick, but instead God points them to His Word. A lot of people demand that you As a witness or me as a preacher, do some magic trick. But the only thing that you can do is point them to the Word because that's the only thing that will ultimately open their eyes. And for people who are too blind to see, the words of God are not enough for them. They want more, they want a dream, they want something. They want to hear the voice of God audibly. But that's where you hear the voice of God and the miracles of God and the works of God in the Bible. People want God to prove something by a sign or a dream or an event. End up, don't believing. They don't end up believing anyway because their faith is in the sign or the work and not and not God. How firm a foundation? I tell you, it's firm. It stood the test of time. I can remember sharing with my father. And the hardest conversations I ever had, I've shared this with you before, but it, it just comes back to my mind right here. When I left the business world in the anthem with six-month-old twins and a three-year-old, and, and he just could not comprehend how I was leaving all of this money and this position and otherwise to at 30 years old to go to seminary and be Barney Fife, a midnight shift security guard. He just he just blew, how, how, why? And how are you going to do that? How are you going to take care of your family? That was, the, that was the question that he asked me. And my answer was, I'm going to, I'm going to trust God. If I can trust God with, with, with what he says is going to happen after I die, then surely I can trust God's words uh, to take care of me now. And then I prayed, Lord, I believe help my unbelief. <laughs> Show yourself Mighty. For my Father, and He has never failed to take care of us, and He has never failed to show Himself mighty. And that wasn't some dream or premonition or, or prompting. And God didn't do that for me because I was, I was sacrificing and doing it. God did that because He says He'll do that in His Word, and He'll do that for you because He says He'll do it in His Word. And that, that's where your hope is. Your, your foundation is firm. God says, I'll give a sign. And that sound will be the resurrection, as foretold in the Bible. You require more revelation if you're like this group, and what you end up receiving is just more condemnation, looking for what it says in verse twelve, they argue they're arrogant, they're demanding God confirm their Rejecting the Bible, demanding of God, and Jesus, in verse 12, responds. Sighing deeply in his spirit. He said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Notice that he's not just speaking about to the Pharisees. He's talking about the whole generation. No sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them again he embarked and went away to the to the other side. There's There's Christ's indignation. But it's more than that. I, I struggled trying to find the right word to to categorize this sigh in his spirit because because it has some indignation in it, but, but that's, the, that's the second response. The first response, the first part of this, of this sigh is grief. It's like grief and indignation mixed together. Have, have you ever had that? Have you ever had like a rolling emotion? There's a first response, and then it gives way to a, a, another response. That's what's happening here. He sighed in his spirit. And said, why does this generation seek for for a sign?" Now, if you have a good memory, you'll you'll think back to the last chapter, just the the healing of the deaf man. You remember when Jesus makes up his own sign language to communicate to the the deaf guy what he's about to do with him? He looks up into heaven to show the deaf uh, man. Puts his fingers in his ear, touches his tongue to communicate. This is where your problem is. He looks up into heaven and he sighs communicating, all of that, nonverbals, communicating to the deaf man. He's just, he's just sighed, and, and here he is sighing again. But this is a compound word. That's why your translations will, will say deeply sighed, or he, he sighed deeply. He sighed in grief over the physical suffering of the, of the deaf man. he sighs greatly over the spiritual blindness of this group. Now to me, I think this is one of the, one of the greatest evidences that, that Jesus is God. And the God that's revealed in the Bible is the one true and living God, the only God. Because He's not like us. All the other religions in the world, whenever you start breaking them down, whatever God, whatever deity it is, it's very human-like, very man-like, has, has human responses. They, they they have to be appeased. They fly off at the handle. Whatever whatever it it might be. What would your natural response be to to these to these men in your heart? Mine would be lightning bolt, right? And if I didn't do that, I surely wouldn't care how argumentative, unteachable, arrogant opposers ended up. I mean, you rejected all of this revelation that I've already given you. That's your problem. It's not mine. And and I I fear that's that's our attitude sometimes with unbelievers. Look, how stupid can you be? Why do you want to go to hell rather than heaven? I mean, look at all the witness around you. Look at creation. How crazy can you be to, to believe in evolution? But that's not how God responds to those people. Not Christ. It breaks his heart. He weeps over Jerusalem. He cries at the grave of Lazarus. When he sees the end result of sin, his grief is great over arrogant, hard-hearted leaders who would have so many proofs, but, proofs but, but still refuse to believe. His first response is grief. And he has grief for you if you still refuse the invitation to come. But that grief won't stop the judgment. won't stop the condemnation. The only repentance and faith will do that. Is a refusal here. He sighs. And then he makes a declaration. Why does this generation seek for the Son? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And there's a declaration from God. No more revelation will be given. That's ominous. And he sees beyond the Pharisees and says, This generation, this is the people of the time. Obviously, you know, some people believe during that generation. But he's talking about the people that are following the general, the, the masses. And this is a, a massively strong statement. Truly I say to you. It's used in Mark chapter 3. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven of the sons of men. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. He says this is an unalterable thing. No sign will be given and. In the Greek, it's a, it's a very unique clause. It's a conditional clause. It, it's the idea, if I give a sign to this generation, may God do so unto me. I'm not giving any more signs, and if I do, may God judge me. I mean, it's, it's like super strong. No more signs, no more teaching, no more preaching. No more. Why? Because Jesus doesn't want them to hear? No, it's very evident he does. Because they won't hear it. It's the most petrifying reality in the Bible that you can reject so much that it wouldn't matter if God Himself stood before you. You wouldn't believe. And for those, at some point, God gives them what they want no more illumination. It's Romans 1. It's Romans 1. God gave them over in the lust of their heart. God gave them over to degrading passions. God gave them over to a depraved mind. And that passage is not just about unrepentant homosexuals. It is about homosexuals, but it's not just about them. It's about those who suppress the truth, any truth in, un, in any unrighteousness. And when you suppress the truth and you suppress the truth and you suppress the truth and you continue in sin and you continue in sin... Rejecting the truth, refusing the truth over and over, over until no light can come through anymore. And you're not going to blame God on the day of judgment for that. You're responsible, not God. You say, how do I know that? Well, again, if you go to the Matthew passage, Matthew adds this something that I learned as a kid. Red skies at night, sailors delight. Red skies in the morning, sailors take warning. You remember that? It was a little saying. It may be different. But it goes all the way back to the time of Christ, probably before. Jesus says to them, you can read the signs of the, of the weather, but you can't read the signs of the times, and you're teachers of Israel. What's he saying? You don't have, a, you don't have an intellectual problem. You don't, have an, you don't have a problem understanding signs, It's not that you can't understand, it's that you you have a heart problem. You can tell the weather. Your problem is you refuse to believe the signs of the time. You can't discern the signs of the time. The commentator said they're better meteorologists than they are theologians. Some people are like that. Oh, they can tell you everything about anything. They can tell you how this works and that works and, and they can, you know, they can exegete the culture and do all of this, but they 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 have no idea whenever the truth's right in front of their of their nose. It's the same thing that Jesus said to Nicodemus. You remember when Jesus came to Nicodemus in John three? Nicodemus was a of the Pharisees, wasn't he? Jesus says to Nicodemus, Teach, you're a teacher and you don't understand these things. If I show you earthly things and you don't believe them, how you believe heavenly things? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And that's what you'll receive, eternal life. But, but you'll not believe. Look at verse thirteen. His disengagement, leaving them. Leaving them, he again embarked. Leaving them he again embarked and went away. So it's three different ways, but those first two words leaving them two of the saddest words in the whole Bible. not just announcing that jesus goes on a new trip it's a deliberate disengagement leaving them that's the idea he abandoned them to their unbelief it was the decision to terminate dialogue with him and his public ministry in galilee and jesus never engages the pharisees in the same way again every time from this point forward in the gospels it's it's as a judge rather than wooing savior and all that comes from this point is condemnation. And Jesus would receive them at any point in time that they would repent. <laughs> but they will not. You will not. It's a denunciation. And the Pharisees and their followers are entrenched in hardness. And those who have not yet been convinced of Christ's message will not be offered any further Illumination or incentive to believe in Galilee. You say, "Wow, it's harsh. It is harsh. It should set. I mean, it, it should it should hit heavy. It's not a it's not a yeehaw passage. It's hard. Was Jesus right to leave them? Did they ever turn? Well, As I said, some of them did. He's talking in general. What was the sign that Jesus? Promised them in Matthew. No sign will be given to this generation. Not some miracles, not some trick from heaven. What will the sign be? It will be a sign from Jonah, right? That's the resurrection. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, three nights, so must the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. And when the sign of Jonah came and Jesus died and was buried and rose from the dead... The information that he is risen came back to the Pharisees and the scribes and the leaders of Israel, and what did they do? (gasps) How stupid could we be? We believe. Matthew 28, verse 11, 15 said, They called the soldiers who were guarding the tomb, and they bribed them to lie about the resurrection. That's how deep spiritual darkness is, apart from the Holy Spirit opening your eyes. They refused to believe it. What does the rich man, we used him last night, what does the rich man from hell say to Abraham? Father Abraham, send Lazarus back. Send someone back to tell my brothers. Do you remember what Abraham says? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, nay, Father Abraham, no, but if one goes back from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they'll not hear Moses and the prophets, if they'll not hear the Bible, if they'll not hear God pleading through an ambassador, if they'll not hear you weeping over souls, if they'll not hear you sharing the message of Christ, a, a preacher in a pulpit, whatever it is that shares the word of God, if they'll not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded when one rise from the dead. And how many times has God pleaded with you from the Bible? Will you believe? What else needs to happen for you to believe nothing? All signs have been given. Christ on the cross, Jonah in the ground. And if you won't believe, no amount of events will ever convince you. And no event needs to convince you. You need to humble yourself, cry out to God, and ask Him to save you. But those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, those who are saved, hear everything and we'll see more and we'll learn more as we'll see in the disciples next time. Don't you bow your heads. Jesus said to his disciples, greater works than this you will not just see, you will do. And that work is the privilege to share the word of God with others. Before we end, there's a prayer room over here. But where you're at, right here, right now, Have you been demanding more from God? Maybe you would just say in your heart, Lord, I see. And it's really my pride, and I repent. I believe upon Christ. And then, whenever we sing, you go to this prayer room, and you take whoever is over there, and you tell them that. And they'll pray with you. And then you can start the process of growing become more like, like Christ. If you're a believer, your heart's desire ought to be more, not demand more, but I want more. I desire more. And the way I come to church, the way I live my life, is, is I, I don't want to play dodgeball anymore, Lord. I want to receive. Fix my heart. Whatever is wrong with my heart, fix it, Lord, so I might receive. Father, we thank You for Your truth. We thank you for the privilege that we have to hear it. I pray that you would do your work even now. Now people have heard. Now, Lord, they need to move. They need to obey. I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.